perform a very daunting task, a task which requires um, a lot of study, a lot of understanding, um, and quite frankly, a lot of time to discuss. So we'll try our best to do what we can do. Uh, and uh, hopefully navigate the, you know, the enormous knowledge of Imam Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, rahimullah, and see how we can benefit uh, from his knowledge, inshallah. So Imam al-Ghazali, rahimullah, did not live in a vacuum, as you know. He lived in the fifth century of Islamic Hijri. And that in his time, he, he, he was also facing a lot of political problems, issues, uh, the fights between the Bataniya, uh, the Shia, and the fight between with the uh, Sunnis and the Abbasis. He was obviously with the Abbasi camp. And as you know, he became a giant scholar. He became very famous in the Nizamiya. Uh, Madras of Baghdad. Uh, he was a celebrity and all of that. He was initially sponsored by Nidham al Muluk, who was the prime minister of the Abbasis in that area. And uh, he wrote some, uh, you know, invaluable books even uh, before he became the Imam al Ghazali that we know today. He was a faqih, he was an usuli, uh, he understood all the principles of jurisprudence, he understood Shafi fiqh, he was a mutakallim and imam of Ashari theology, and um, you know he was just a very unique person and almost a polymath. Um, so this is Imam al-Ghazali, as we know him. Before the, you know, the seclusion that he went into later on, and when he came back, he didn't come back to Baghdad. He went home to his hometown, Tuls, and then that's where he lived. Eventually, that's where he died. But this um, theory that we want to present today, Imam Ghazali's theory of Khilafah and what we call nowadays uh, a political theory. And it came about because uh, he was asked to, commissioned actually, to write a rebuttal to the Bataniya, the Shias. And uh, he wrote a book called Fadaih al Bataniya, literally translated as the immoral or the scandalous uh, opinions about the Bataniya that they hold some uh, theological positions uh, which were totally erroneous, at least uh, from our point of view, the Sunni point of view. And he goes through that book uh, enumerating uh, their ideology, their philosophy, their theology, their practices, the various groups uh, that they had, and goes through a long list of errors that he felt they were making. And amongst those were, was the, the issue of imama, 
leadership and state authority. So he talks about it there, and he talks about it in other books that he has written as councils for rulers and uh, other books specifically for uh, uh, rulers and leaders. Uh, so you all know he has his book, which is his magnum opus, we all know that. But then he wrote another book just for the ulama uh, to show the ulama of his time that uh, they're not exempt from this type of reform. And so Meyar is that book and he wrote exclusively for them. And that is how we see Imam Ghazali wanted to reform uh, the Ummah, but the, 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 the politics as we might see it today is slightly different. It may not be that quote-unquote political. No? Yeah. So sometimes we have problems, especially coming from the West, not trying to, uh, you know, impose our uh, style of reading, our paradigms, our values onto another system and try to see if uh, uh, there's a bridge. And sometimes it's very difficult to, uh, you know, reconcile two very different types of works and two very different types of reading, where nowadays politics uh, uh, and words that are linked with politics, such as human rights and uh, democracy, uh, were, were not the words that, that they used and so on, even though they may sound very similar. And it's like having a hard drive and trying to use a soft drive that's not compatible on that hard drive. So likewise, uh, you know, Islamic literature and Islamic religious literature is not to be measured against uh, the modern day uh, post-Jeffersonian human rights language and uh, you know against modern understandings of politics and democracy and so on because they wrote in a very Islamic language. Mm. So when you write in Islamic language you are going to use some words uh, that are from the Quran and Sunnah and they have a very different connotation uh, even though they may sound the same, as I said, in, in modern discourse, and especially that discourse which is Eurocentric. Mm. So when non-Muslims comment about our scholars and uh, sometimes they make claims that they've understood and they analyze and think about that, then it is probably more of a process of what we call mm, easy justice, where you, you're trying to impose your view on the authors writing. Whereas in our madrasa system, one of the most important methodologies that we use is to understand the murad of the mutakallim. What is the intent of the speaker? What is the intent of the author? So if you want to understand the intent of the author, you have to understand him. You have to understand the context in which he wrote. And more importantly, you have to understand the language he is using. So a modern political language is not the best language by which you can measure any of the early classical uh, Muslim works on the same subject. And I also, I'm not sure it's the same subject. Mm -hmm. 
So in Islam, if the, briefly, not briefly, but generally translated word for politics is siyasa. And that word itself is subject to debate. Does siyasa actually mean uh, politics in the way we understand politics today? So, you know, the Prophet mentioned the word that's one place where the word siyasa actually comes as a verb that the Prophet said the Banu Israel, they were governed and they were managed by the Prophets. So the, 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 the Prophets now have a role to manage and to govern and uh, enforce Allah's will, enforce the law, enforce Sharia, and so on. So it is here that I think we should begin the discussion of what Siyasa Islamiyah is all about. Uh, it's much broader than what we might um, you know, presume here today. So that there are different levels of, of Siyasa. One uh, that, again, uh, through Imam Ghazali's works himself, I think we can analyze that and then there are four or five levels of siyasa. One is siyasa the ambiya, that it is the siyasa of the ambiya, the prophets, raising, uh, training, uh, inculcating values in their ummah and uh, helping them uh, accept uh, the deen and uh, apply the laws of sharia in their communities. Uh, as a state law. So this is, you know, where the Ambiya, now they also use Tarbiya, and they also use reform uh, language in their siyasa, where, where they, they want to reform the virtue and the value, the mindset and the behavior, the akhlaq, uh, ethics and morals of people bringing virtue into society. Uh, whereas modern day siyasa uh, may be doing that somewhere, but it's not one of the main prime object objectives and so on. So the, for the Ummiya, the Imam Ghazali, Allah then based on this separates knowledge into basically two categories, knowledge that is foundational and knowledge that is now theological, which is based on consequences and results. And, and so on, so knowledge that is intrinsic in the word ilm, knowledge of the Quran, Sunnah, Wahi, knowledge of the ahkam of Sharia, and so on. That you get this discussion in the beginning of Ihya Ulum Deen, where he's saying there's beneficial knowledge and detrimental knowledge, and knowledge that is essential, and knowledge that is uh, auxiliary knowledge, uh, meaning it serves an ala uh, as a helper and so on. So he, he, he brings in this discussion and then he, he says that uh, the knowledge of siyasa, of ruling and governing, is actually not a foundational knowledge. It's there to serve, you know, justice uh, through the hakim, the governor, the ruler, whoever it is, uh, so that they, we maintain law and order and we stay away from chaos and we stay away from violence and we have you know, the implementation of law and order and so on and so forth. So there you can see his mind uh, is, is basically uh, 
you know, at, uh, on a level that is based on the the, the knowledge of the prophets, because the the prophet's role is not just to govern here in this world with justice, it's also to help people procure salvation, which is in the Akhirah. Uh, so the Akhirah-based discussion is uh, very different and broader than the secular discussion of law and order and politics and so on. That's why he separates the siyasa of the Anbiya from all other forms of siyasa. So the high level of siyasa is the level of the Anbiya, the prophets who can they not only rule the apparent bodies and the society, but they also rule the, the inner values of human beings and they develop their ethics and moral behavior. And more than that, they develop their spirituality and their association and their, well, you know, their ta'alluq uh, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how they worship Allah and how they see Allah and how you know, they develop a closeness to Allah for all human beings. Now, this very comprehensive, uh, that is how I think we should see Imam Ghazali is following the same model in his understanding of siyasa uh, in this dunya also. So you see that the model is much broader, it's a very vast model. And uh, the basic now siyasa of other people, he defines as um, you know, siyasa of the ulama, the true scholars of Islam, they have a siyasa, they have a role in not only defining the moral values of society, but also you know, giving advice to rulers as, as, they have, as to how they should govern and how they should lead and how they should rule and so on. So this is always the case with Muslims. As far as uh, the initial khilaf of the Khulafa Rashidun, uh, he would liken them to the almost like the siyasa of the Anbiya, in a step lower than that, obviously. Uh, but since the, those Khulafa were ulama, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali, they were both ulama, they were both scholars and in their own rights, they were able to govern and lead, not only with the letter of the law, but also with the spirit of the law. So they were attached to ibadah. Uh, in their own private times, and they were very God-fearing, and they were very pious, as uh, much as they were judicious, and uh, they, they had insight and foresight, and they had basira, and farasa, they were able to rule and govern uh, people as, as far as establishing the qanun, the law, uh, the constitution, if, if you can use that word, and so on. So they were able to do the mundane part of ruling and governing, and they were also able to do the spiritual part of now ruling and governing where people looked up to their piety and people looked up to their ethics and moral behavior and so on. So a combination of both the inner and the outer were, was present in the four khulafa uh, that we know. Then later on, there was a split, obviously. So the, then the people who had now, authority, political authority, they, they were not necessarily always that pious that people would flock to them and follow them. So he, he makes another category of uh, people, uh, the Salihin, uh, over people and so on. So 
you know, there, there, there's a, a story where Imam Zain al-Abideen walks into the Haram with a huge entourage of people. Hundreds of people are walking into the Haram with him. And then Farazdaq, who is a shayr, he is observing uh, now the entry of the Khalifa, who also happens to be there, president of Mecca. He's also entering. He's entering with his guards and his security detail. And he's looking at this one, Zain al-Abideen, who's from the Ahlibayt. And he has, you know, a sea of people behind him. So he's asking his guards and everybody else, who, who is this person? How come he's being followed uh, much more than I'm being followed? And then nobody looks to me, they don't even say salam to me. Everybody now kissing his feet. So Farazda composes a magnificent uh, poem. Uh, so in which he says that basically, you know, that uh, if you don't know him, then it doesn't matter. That people outside of the haram know him and people inside the haram know him. So this is now uh, a type of siyasa, a type of power to govern and, uh, you know, show authority over people. But his authority, Zayn al-Abidin's authority over people was spiritual. It was not legal that he was not the hakim, he was not the ruler. But uh, people flocked to him because of this spiritual uh, kind of attachment. And people want to be pious and be associated with pious people. And that's where the ulama uh, have always had a much larger impact on society and a much greater impact on society, much deeper impact on society than, than the, the, the rulers of the time. There are exceptions, obviously like Omar ibn Abdul Aziz and others who are very pious uh, that we know of, but uh, on the whole, so th 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 this categorization of siyasa shows that Imam Ghazali is grading the whole idea of siyasa, which could be more of leadership and imposing, enforcing authority so that people stay on the right track. And so on, then obviously yeah, later on, you have the siyasa of the khulafa and the muluk, that whoever was the Khalifa, whoever was a king or monarch, they had their own siyasa, but that siyasa was limited to now mundane affairs and to mundane law. And uh, so that, you know, there's no uh, violence, there's no injustice, and there's law and order, no chaos, etc. So now, based on this categorization, we see that Imam Ghazali, uh, primarily as he now writes Din is now dividing the ummah uh, and the community into two or three groups. So he said the first group, they're concerned about their akhirah. They're concerned about being able to witness Allah's uh, beauty, uh, Allah's uh, face mubarak uh, on the day of judgment and in Jannah. They're, they're, they're worried about you know, uh, eternal happiness and pleasure, not just um, mundane and secular happiness and so on. So he concedes that there are both levels, uh, but one level is higher than the other. And people who want to be more realistic about life, they should pursue the higher bliss and not simply the lower one. Mm -hmm. So that is how he writes the Hamuddin, because in his time, uh, the, 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 the uh, most kind of ironic nowadays, but the most prestigious profession was to be a 
theologian and a Muslim lawyer, Muslim judge. They were paid the most, they were, you know, the most celebrated, and that industry really flourished because everyone who had knowledge of deen and sharia wanted to be close to the ruler, uh, to the judge, and they, 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 they had, uh, you know, endowments for them, and they, they, they had stipends for them, and they were, uh, as you see, commissioned uh, to write books and write commentaries, and uh, Islamic knowledge. Uh, etc. So then that was the, you know, the thing to be was, was to be a Muslim theologian. They would be the closest to administration. They would be closest to the rulers and the courts uh, and so on. So Imam Ghazali is looking at this because he was one himself. So when he retreats and understands that the inner beauty of Islam is to develop one's ethics, moral behavior, to develop one's uh, attachment to Allah, and uh, one must be able to learn uh, from sources other than what's written in the books. So you should perhaps learn how the other earlier ulama learned and the Sahaba learned without the aid of a book, otherwise known as the oral tradition. So he goes into this now phase of his life where he becomes holistic, comprehensive, inclusive so he, he gives merit to the apparent sciences of sharia fiqh and tafsir and hadith and kalam these are all very good noble uh, disciplines and you must learn them but then he says the purpose of learning these disciplines um is, is a much higher than that is much higher than you seeking a favorable position with the ruler or in the court is uh, much more than earning money, is much more than happiness in this world. It is to attain happiness in the other world. And obviously he then had a abridged version of Ihya'ulum al-Din in his uh, you know, mother tongue Farsi, which he called Kimaya Kimiyai, Sa'adat. Sa'adat there means happiness, so it's the alchemy of happiness. So Imam Ghazali was all about promoting joy and happiness, but uh, not at the the expense of salvation and the expansion at uh, the expense of being punished uh, here in this world in, in the grave or on the day of judgment and so on. So then this is his, his broad theory. Now, ruling, governing in this world is part of it. He says it is faltikifaya, it's a communal duty that you must appoint an imam for taking care of the political lives of uh, Muslims and non-Muslims and for making sure there's peace, security, making sure that there's no violence, no injustice, etc. So he, he concedes that it's a necessary component of this life. So he starts off with uh, an idea based on the hadith of the Prophet that the dunya, this world here, is, is a, a farmland for the akhirah. So you farm here and you reap the fruits there, but you can't reap the fruits there until you use this world. So whatever you do in this world is that you're farming, you're sowing the seeds, you're taking care of the plants and the crops and you're doing your agriculture and then making sure that you harvest when you die, after you die in Jannah. So but you can't do that without being here. He gives tremendous amount of importance of Muslims being here in this world and not staying aloof 
uh, like hermits and remain aloof from society. No, he said, you have to be here. Um, but the Sharia gives us now the formula to do all of this. And that is why uh, you have to maintain the Sharia law uh, in terms of making sure people, people do not openly sin uh, and do things that are, you know, vile and disgusting, immoral, etc. So the Khalifa or the Imam is there to make sure that happens, along with making sure that you have Saddu Thuhur, taking care of the frontiers, that no enemy comes in and attacks you and, uh, you know, kills you, etc. And making sure that there is a, a, an infrastructure of a civil society uh, in this world. So he's all about civility in this world, adab, uh, etc. So he, he will speak about all of this in Ihyarulumuddin, where he takes us through uh, the various developmental stages in each ethic, uh, a moral value, and each vice. So in his book, obviously, you know, there, there's, there, there's a whole book on, or a chapter on those actions that are what he calls, uh, you know, munjiyat, those actions that, that will save us, and then those actions that are muhlikat and mubiqat that are destructive and detrimental to our health here and also our health uh, in the akhirah. And so, on. so, so he, he goes with that. So as I was mentioning, he, he wanted the ulama to be the most refined and the most reformed because he saw them as a catalyst between the government and people. People always approach the ulama, as I said, and the ulama were always consulted by the rulers. So they, they played this role of being a liaison for the people and being a liaison for the rulers. So he wanted to reform the whole ummah by reforming the ethics and morals of the ulama who were now the gateway to you know the rulers, the gateway to the political system, and so on. And they were also now, you know, the eyes and ears of the people, and so on. So this is his uh, solution. I think Ihyalumuddin has many, many facets, many angles, many purposes, many benefits. But one of the most important is that he wanted to reform the. Ulama. And then in his time, when he felt that the ulama didn't quite get the message, he wrote uh, a separate book for them, uh, which is the Al-Mayyar. Uh, so that book was written exclusively for the ulama. So the ulama know that when we represent Islam and the Muslim community in front of the rulers, then we have to be just, we have to be pious, we have to be honest, we have to be forthright, and we have to make sure that we are not endorsing injustice and we're not endorsing any kind of favoritism and we're not endorsing uh, any other form of violating the rights of other people so his main focus uh, was now as you see from the title title itself reviving the sciences of deen of, of religion by reviving the spirit and the ruh in the Ulama. So the ulama class uh, were the most important class to actually reform and uh, you know develop so that the whole ummah would be reformed and, and develop slightly different nowadays and so on. But, but anyway, so more of that a bit later. 
So he goes through these phases of siyasa, siyasat al-anbiya, and siyasat al-ulama, and siyasat al-wa'adh, and the siyasat of the khulafa, and the hukama, and so on. Then in his discussions with uh, uh, rulers and ministers, because they all came to him for advice, okay, so he, he wrote separate letters to some of these rulers, and so on. So in those letters, he really focuses on the same thing, that develop your relationship with Allah, uh, make sure your salvation is now airtight, and uh, make sure that you have the ability to speak to Allah on the Day of Judgment in a good way, and take care of your inner, and then obviously reform your outer. So when he says reform your outer, what he is saying is that your role is to enforce uh, peace, security, and justice in the uh, you know the people that you are ru ruling and governing. So he bu builds out a system for uh, Muslim rulers uh, and how to behave, how to be, and, and that's always been the case with all the ulama uh, or of the ummah, uh, as far back as Harun al-Rashid, as you know, the great Abbasi Khalifa and his right-hand man was none other than Qadi Abu Yusuf, who is the prime student of Abu Hanifa. So Qadi Abu Yusuf was the first Supreme Justice in history, and he was a right-hand man and advisor for Harun Rashid, who had a great khilafah, had a great empire. So Harun Rashid is always advising the Khalifa that you can do this. And he wrote several books for him. Kitab al-Amwal, Kitab al-Kharaj, how, how to dispense money, how to take care of the state's treasury. And then he also wrote another fascinating uh, small book on how to treat prisoners. And it is in that book that he shows his prowess. He shows his understanding of administration. He shows his understanding of government. And so on. So I'm, all I'm saying is that we're not going to go into what he said in Rome because I'm just using Abu Yusuf as an example. That ulama have always played a foundational uh, and functional role in developing the government and uh, making sure that there are checks and balances in the government and making sure that if uh, the government, the hakim, the ruler, does anything wrong, they're there to state that, sometimes at the expense of their lives, as I'm sure some of you. If you read Muslim history, you know uh, this also has happened for uh, two scholars that they've been persecuted, they've been punished, and they've been you know, basically executed. And so, so anyway, so the, 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 the role of Imam Ghazali is nothing other than the role of all ulama who came before him and all ulama who came after him. In his treatise against the Bataniya, he brings out some of his ideas and theories of Muslim government, uh, Muslim siyasa, if you want to call it that. And I, I think we must see what he says there so that we understand his role in developing a coherent, consistent theory for Muslim governance, Muslim government rule, whatever you like to call it. <laughs> I'm not too fond of calling anything Islamic a democracy, nor am I fond of calling it a theocracy. And Imam Ghazali was the same. We take our lead from him and others who came before him, that we don't want to use and label Islam with these kind of foreign labels. 
they're kind of alien to us, theocracy and democracy and all of that. We should take charge of our own civilization and you know, start representing our original positions with our original words, terminology, nomenclature, so that it is ours and it's not something that is Eurocentric. I mean, that's for the ulama here. And for the great Muslim thinkers who are maybe here listening or they, they listen afterwards, we, we do need to take an original stance about our civilizational values and the terminology we use. So that it's not just to impress other people that we have similar terminologies. It's for uh, you know, revealing the truth. And the truth is that uh, Imam Ghazali, in, in a very intriguing way, uh, starts to justify the Sunni position of Khilafah and Imama. And that is by uh, you know, initiating a conversation about the first Khalifa. So in the first Khalifa, you see that the method and process by which we elected slash selected Abu Bakr to be the Khalifa is kind of strange, to say the least. So, Abu Bakr was there in the Banu Saida. Um, the Ansar were there. Some of the Muhajirun were there. And they start discussing leadership and so on. So this Ansar said that there'd be a leader from you and there'd be a leader from the Muhajirun. And so, so everybody said no to that. He said, that doesn't make any sense. That's not leadership. And, um, then after some discussion, Omar was there and he put his hand over Abu Bakr's hand and said that I'm taking a pledge. I'm taking bay'ah with you. You are not my khalifa. And then a few moments later, everybody acquiesced and everybody followed. And they all took a pledge of allegiance uh, for Abu Bakr to be the khalifa. This is the basic uh, story simply stated. So we see from, from this story, Imam Ghazali now looks at this story and says that uh, originally the whole idea of um, you know, imama and leadership, uh, political authority and political leadership, he's using imama because of his you know, conversations with the Shia, uh, with the Batiniya. That's why he's using the word there. He said basically, the first rule is that uh, imama, uh, political authority, is established through power, through uh, domination, if you want to use that word, I'm not sure that's the best word, but, but, but by establishing that you are in power and you have an authority over people, the shoka, which is a good word, I think. And then uh, he further says, was shoka to taqumu bil that shoka, political authority and power, it stands on bayah. It is established by mubaya that you have a free Muslim person who's you know willing to take the bayah, and you have free Muslims who are willing to offer their bayah. That's why he uses mubaya, two-way traffic. So the person there must be free, meaning the leader. And the people following, must all, they must also be free. So ikhtiyar there, uh, and choice, and uh, volition is huge for Imam Ghazali. From this, people will 
disciple and have decided that they, he's talking about democracy. Nothing. The word didn't exist in their minds at that time. But it is freedom. There's no compulsion there. So you're free to acquiesce, you're free to agree, and you're also free to disagree until you agree. And that is the case with Ali. He did not take bayah immediately, he took bayah six months later. Okay. But that ikhtiyah there, that, that, that the, 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 uh, Islam is given a choice for free individuals to exercise their freedom and volition freely uh, and not in a compulsive way. That, he says, is the key to the bayah of Abu Bakr. That Omar freely took bayah with Abu Bakr. And then the other Sahaba who were there present at that time, they also willingly and freely gave their bay'ah to Abu Bakr, and that is how bay'ah is established, and so on. So we, we see here now uh, uh, Imam Ghazali is trying to understand that process, that this is the origins of the Sunni system, the Sunni order, Understanding the origin, uh, you know, it's necessary for us to establish our system of how we elect or select. Then in the second Khalifa, Abu Bakr appointed uh, Omar. And then in the third, then Omar appointed a council of six where they decided who will be the Khalifa. And then after Uthman, obviously, Obviously, everything war broke out, and, and that was the end of the discussion. But all these three conventions, what they show us is that there is some flexibility, and nothing is written in stone. So the whole idea of siyasa now becomes ishtihadi, mm. and the reason it is ishtihadi because there are no clear-cut nas and uh, scriptural texts that we can say defines the political system of selecting, electing, and so on. I think that's very important that Imam Ghazali brings this out in his Fadai of the Bataniya and so on. But then another discussion arises from the Ihya itself that uh, the political power or the, the, the role of the Hakim and the Khalifa is, is very mundane. Uh, I'll stop short of using the word secular because this is another term, mundane affairs. The Khalifa is there to supervise, take care of, maintain, manage the mundane affairs, the civil affairs of the Ummah. And this also goes back to what the Sahaba said about Abu Bakr. So when the Sahaba, all of them agreed to the Khilaf of Abu Bakr, they made a statement and the statement is very intriguing. They said that the Prophet ﷺ entrusted Abu Bakr in matters of their deen when he appointed him to be his Imam. When the Prophet ﷺ was sick, he appointed Abu Bakr to lead the Salat for all the Sahaba. So he appointed him to be his now Khalifa in matters of deen. We have now appointed Abu Bakr to be our imam in matters of the dunya, the mundane matters. And that's very intriguing. That there, the theory we develop, the Sunnis, is that the Khalifa there uh, is in charge of all mundane affairs of 
the state, uh, the dola, uh, the you know the people uh, that you rule. So you have to establish a police force. You have to establish courts. You have to establish now institutions for education, learning, institutions for collecting zakat. You have to establish you know the rules and regulations of uh, trade and everything that's needed in order to run a state. You have to establish you know, an army and everything else that a state needs. So in Al-Ulumuddin, uh, Imam Ghazali mentions this in a different place, which has been mentioned, by the way, by many other scholars before him. So this is not unique to Imam Ghazali, but he mentions this in the categorization of knowledge. So he says that any skill set or profession that's needed in order to maintain and enhance the community is for us to establish as an ummah. Say for instance, uh, you cannot live uh, in this world today without a doctor, or without a lawyer, or without an engineer, without somebody in agriculture, or whatever the field may be. So the ulama of usul and legal theory, they say it is meaning that if you do not have a lawyer or an engineer, a doctor, an accountant in your community, because without them, the community will not function as a community, you are committing a collective sin. So that's how important the mundane affairs of the Ummah, uh, they've been seen by the ulama. They, 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 they did not want Muslims to believe they have to be hermits and they have to go out and live in the wilderness and so on. They said, no, you have to engage as a society, as a community, and acquiring these skill sets is fortifier. Therefore, facilitating the acquisition of these skill sets also becomes fortifier, where you must now establish these institutions, places of learning, madaris, schools, high schools, colleges, universities, whatever name you want to give them. Yeah. So Imam Ghazali mentions this uh, in the chapter of knowledge and the classification of knowledge. So he, he's, uh, you know, well in line, well in, synchronized with the rest of the Ummah and the previous ulama uh, as to how necessary the mundane affairs of the Ummah, because it's a collective duty. It's not just an individual duty. Then, surprisingly, he laments, ironic, because the time has changed now. He laments that we do not find any doctor except from the Dhimmis. He said, only the Dhimmis, non-Muslims, Jews and Christians, they have a few doctors. He says that the Ummah, the Muslim Ummah, they do not produce any doctors. There's no one there who can treat us when we are sick. We have thousands of theologians and thousands of uh, you know, Muslim scholars and muhaddith and Mufassir and uh, all of that. But we don't have an institution of tib. So he's making that point. And uh, this shows us that they really wanted to make sure that their mundane services were provided by Muslims and not by the dhimmi. Even though the dhimmis were there and they were employed by the, you know, the ruler and the hakim and so on. And this shows you that there's the, a the very cohesive understanding in the mind of Imam Khazali about uh, leadership. Uh, siyasa and the need to address all the mundane affairs of the ummah. So he, he makes this statement. Al-imamatu indana tanaqidu bishawka wa shawka tataqumul 
mubayah, that a bayah is necessary in order to, to, to kind of justify the imam and leadership of a human being. What's important to address here is that he, as all the previous ulama that I know of, they all say that there must be one person in charge. They're not in favor of a, you know, what you call it, a parliament or a congress. Now, that being said, it's not haram either. I mean, as far as I know, as I said, this is all ishtihadi. It can change uh, with time. And on several instances, it was almost as if Muslims just left politics to be what a laissez-faire issue. Let it be what it is, and if it works, it's fine. If it doesn't work, then change it. But there's nothing set in stone that you can say this is the, uh, you know, the definite um, monolithic theory of politics in Islam. I mean, a rulership, uh, govern government, and uh, you know, being able to govern people and establish these institutions and facilities, infrastructure for Muslims. It doesn't matter how you do it, and so you must do it. So we don't tolerate injustice, uh, but we do tolerate the idea if there's one person who has already established his authority and power, then we won't remove him unless there's absolute injustice and violence and so on. Yeah. So I think that has to be also understood. So in that case, you know, you can have a, a sense of democracy and, and you can have a sense of theocracy where in the concluding statement, uh, Imam Ghazali here, which I have here, it says, well, mubayatu la tahsulu illa bisarfillah. Is that the queen in the cosmological sense, uh, maybe in the theological sense, that, um, you know, um, rulership and leadership is something that Allah decides. So he goes off there also. So from this, people may say that Imam Ghazali is supporting theocracy. Nothing like it. They didn't have the idea in their minds. So here we see that uh, this is based on the ayah, Allah is the one who gives kingdom authority to whomever he wants to. He takes away kingdom authority to whomever he wants to. So he, he, he sees this as a divine order that's coming down into the minds of people by people willingly giving their pledge to a person. So that is kind of almost a, a divine component to the whole idea of who governs and who doesn't, but it has to be institutionalized by human beings. I mean, Allah won't come down with an eye of the Quran or Hadith the Prophet that yeah, you must do this, this, and that. It is just something that is cosmologically provided and ascertained by people at large in terms of, you know, he does appreciate Akhlabiya, uh, that there's a general majority consensus as who is now the ruler and so on, uh, which is also fine. You can accommodate that too. But the whole idea is that uh, Imam Ghazali say that the most important is to understand that the effects of leadership must be good. And the effects of leadership, whoever is in power, then they cannot be good. So in one of his books uh, that he writes, At-Tibr is one of the books he writes about politics, uh, if you want to call it politics, 
more of leadership and governance, is that he likens all of this to a tree. So he says that the, the root of the tree is Tawheed. And then the trunk is now your Ibadat. And, so, and then he said the branches, then they, 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 they come out into justice and uh, you know, tolerance and you know, facilities, conveniences, infrastructure, and all of that. And the fruit, obviously, is the, the fruit of Iman, uh, which hopefully manifests itself in Jannah and so on. So he said, you must cultivate uh, the trunk and you must cultivate the roots and you must make sure the roots are firm and firmly rooted, established in the ground. And it's only with this kind of uh, approach uh, and, and this that you have an ideal for what a Muslim government, Muslim governance is all about. That unless the government is, is rooted in Tawheed, rooted in the Aqaid of Islam, and unless the uh, Tawheed grows into a, a very formidable trunk, yeah, and until that trunk yields into itself into branches and the branches don't get fruit, you won't have an idea what Islamic leadership, Islamic politics is all about. So yeah, definitely he's not ignoring the idea of um, you know Islam and politics. He does write about it in various chapters of Ihya. He does write about it sometimes in separate books that he writes to rulers, uh, etc. And so on. So this is now Imam Ghazali's theory. Since it ties the mundane with the spiritual, it ties this world with the other world, you get the sense that he is a very comprehensive thinker. So he places everything where it belongs. So he doesn't kind of beat around the bush. He's very coherent, he's very cohesive, and very consistent in his understanding of how human beings should be. The bottom line is that uh, Imam Ghazali uh, is ensuring that uh, salvation is uh, procurable with or without a government. He says a society, a Muslim society cannot function as a Muslim society without Islamic law, Islamic rule. That's a given. Other than that, you can function as a Muslim who wants to procure salvation without a government like, like we do when we're living here in the West. And he said the ideal is to have a Muslim Khalifa, a Muslim Hakim, Muslim ruler, Muslim governor, who's going to uphold all of Islam, all of Islamic principles that uh, combine you know, benefits of mundane <coughs> existence and all the fruits of the spiritual existence that is yet to come in the other world. So this is a khulasa, a summary of uh, you know, his kind of very vast writings. Imam Ghazali wrote on so many different subjects. He wrote uh, extensively Islamic law, Islamic legal theory, extensively on logic, extensively on aqidah, extensively on refuting uh, the false claims made by uh, you know, deviant Muslims in the in the Khilafah also. So he, he, he was very much engaged uh, with the dialogue with different types of different groups of people. And he provides us with a roadmap for felicity, a roadmap for happiness uh, in the hereafter. So obviously people before him like Al-Farabi and people after him like Ibn Rushd they, they, and Ibn Khaldun, they've written their theories and their treatises about you know, Muslim government 
um, if you want to call it sociology, which we don't want to call it that, that's there also. But what separates Imam Ghazali is his concern for Muslims in the Akhir, which is uh, very close to the mindset of prophets and the Khulafa Rashidin. That the mindset of the prophets, when they came to rule and govern like the Banu Israel, the Banu Israel were, were, were kind of blessed with the prophets who would succeed prophets. And they were also blessed with kings and rulers. So they always had somebody uh, to oversee their mundane affairs and the prophets would oversee their spiritual affairs along with the mundane. And so, so it's, uh, Imam Ghazali wants the Ummah to go back into the Khulafa Rashidin model and see what they can do. But he said, no, out of pure necessity, he concedes that, you know, some of the rulers here are not the most pristine in terms of Islamic ideology. They, they perhaps do not meet certain requirements and standards of Islamic leadership, whether they're eligible or not, uh, whether someone, this one is Qureshi or not, or not. So, so he says, in order to avoid a huge calamity, a fitna, uh, he says we have to concede that this is where, if you have ascertained shoka, power and authority through a process of bayah and pledging allegiance to the ruler, then that will be enough for the moment. That's not necessarily the ideal. Sometimes you have to acquiesce to circumstances and, uh, you know, removing harm from the ummah is a principle in Islam and you know, making sure there's no more bloodshed. In the Ummah is following the Sunnah of uh, you know, Imam Hassan, uh, and that's what he did when he conceded the Khilafah to Muawiyah. And the reason he gave is, I don't want any more bloodshed in the Ummah. Many, many Muslims are just dying and being killed uh, just for this reason, political reason. He said, that's not a fight, I'm going to fight. So I want to make sure Muslim blood is spared. So the later uh, ulama, Sunni ulama who followed Imam Hassan in this, they did the same. So, okay, that this one may not strictly be following the code of eligibility, but he is established. And if he's established, we're not going to overthrow him until he is, uh, you know, blatantly uttering kufr and, uh, you know, a blatant uh, kind of butcher and so on. So, anyway, th this is the khulasa that Imam Ghazali's mindset is all about being close to Allah, whether you're the hakim or whether you're a street cleaner. You, what you have in common is Tawheed, what you have in common are the Aqaid, what you have in common are all the rituals that you need to do, and what you have in common, at least as an idea, is that you develop yourselves, your good behavior, and so on. So uh, no one in leadership can abuse anyone who is now following and who is a subject, and maybe who is a citizen, if you want to use that word, of your particular kingdom or your khilafah. So that's the bottom line. This is very clear and very objective. And so but he brings in usul al-fiqh to show that his level of understanding what is called darura applies also to politics, not just to other issues of fiqh. That at the Political level, there is a darura to maintain law and order and to avoid bloodshed and to avoid fitna. So he uses that in order to justify his position for his time. We'll stop here.
Hopefully, inshallah, there is some time, I guess, for comments, questions. You can write them on the chat. You can ask them if you want uh, through the microphone there, inshallah. So we'll, if the moderator allows, we can have time for that. Is that okay? Yes, it's completely fine, inshallah. Then you may write your question on the chat, if you have any. How have the different political systems developed in Islam been different from since today when one talks in system? People like liken it to theocracy instantly. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm not sure most, uh, everybody does it, but most people do want to assume very romantically that we are theocracy. So that was answered by the statement of the Sahaba that Islamic rule, Islamic state rule has more to do with the mundane affairs of the ummah, managing the ummah, making sure the ummah is safe and protected and making sure that infrastructure is there, convenience are there, people are fed and clothed and people are given homes and shelter and uh, there's schooling and there are other you know, social uh, conveniences provided. That's all mundane. Okay. Um, in fact, Imam Ghazali goes as far as to saying that the, the siyas of ulama, when the ulama are in control and they, they influence society through their knowledge of deen and sharia, he, he says that they don't have access to the hearts of believers. They don't have the siyas of the anbiya, where the anbiya have access to the hearts of believers uh, they can tell you this act is out of sincerity and this is not. Uh, the ulama and the faqih will tell you the mechanics of what is valid legally. Uh, and uh, in terms of your mechanics of salat, that if you do this mechanically, your salat is valid. They won't actually tell you whether or not your salat is in a good spiritual condition because that is reserved for the prophets and so on. And so theocracy is kind of being holier than that, I think. <laughs> I don't like the idea. Uh, there is a sense that Allah gives the hukum to manage the affairs and to follow the ruler uh, and so on. So that if you say that because we're following a divine order, then the origin of our government is theocratic. That's fine. The idea that the government is going to be now what we call, uh, you know, establishing a divine order on earth, that's, I think, far-fetched. Although, having said that, Imam Ghazali does see the Khalifa as a shadow of Allah's will. But that's a manifestation of Allah's nur and authority coming down to the mundane. So the word shadow means is not the original object of light either. Shadow, obviously, as you know, does not exist. Anyway, but that's a good point. Um, does Ishtihad allow Muslim elite to establish democracy with justification of Ishtihad given the existing predicaments? Will it uh, legitimize the authority over Muslims? Will it be sinful if we don't engage in political system of allegiance to the ruler in the case of 
democracy. If you talk about Darul Islam in a Muslim country, you must acquiesce to the leader in terms of policy, especially not in terms of anything that is sinful, as we know from the Hadith. Now, as I said, even, even Imam Ghazali can see that this is not the ideal structure that I would approve for Muslim rule, Muslim authority, and Muslim leadership. He said there's another ideal, which is one step after this. So we have to go with the status quo. We have to be realistic, pragmatic, and, and practical. We can't become super idealistic because then we won't be able to live or function. Then obviously, as I said, the, the principle of darura will have to be applied here. That will be your ishtihad and so on, if that's what the question is. Uh, if, uh, are we sinful if we don't engage in the political system? If the political system is based on zulm, oppression, or some kind of uh, you know, blatant sin, then we do have the prerogative of a nasiha. We have to give good counsel. Now, good counsel doesn't mean violence and doesn't mean that you destroy the infrastructure. We're not in favor of destroying an infrastructure that is already developed. So you have to be careful there. You can't go around vandalizing and destroying property and all of that. That is not, that's not sensible. That's very uh, irresponsible. It takes decades to build infrastructure. And the reason you want a change in politics is because you want to improve the infrastructure, not to destroy it. So if in the midst of reforming, you destroy everything that's been built before, that's not a sensible way to approach violence. There has to be a method by which you, you persuade people and so unless you're talking about, you know, passive resistance, you know, that's a different issue. Okay, but as far as you live in a Muslim country and you, you, you are going to be with the ruler, Sunni political quietism uh, takes precedence here. If you're living in a non-Muslim country, then that's a very different ballgame altogether. You're not required to change the system. Uh, you can only engage within the boundaries of the law of the land to demonstrate, to protest, to write. And there are many ways, and there are many people, especially here in the USA, uh, Britain, UK, and England is very different. The, the way uh, people demonstrate there is very different from the way people would demonstrate here. So the, the two different systems are there, two different governing, governing law and rules are in place. But uh, you know, if you have freedom of speech, uh, freedom of press, you, you should use that freedom to voice your opinion and your discontent. And so again, without resorting to violence and so on. Did any Imam follow Imam Ghazali's teaching of Siyasa from trust? If so, who was that? Was there a need to? Yeah, meaning that this was contextual, as I mentioned. So every alim who came, uh, if he was approached by the government, or if he found that there's a need to approach the government, he would contextualize his nasiha based on the problems he saw uh, in that society, in that leadership. It will not be a universal panacea that you can give this one pill to every Muslim ruler who's corrupt. No, it was contextual. So they would use their ishtihad and they would come to terms with what is needed and what is not needed and they would approach that. On the whole, they're very sensible 
people. But they, on the whole, they, it doesn't seem to me that uh, they were in favor of violence um, and bloodshed. Uh, inshallah. But yeah, they, they were there people who used this theory? Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah developed this theory a bit further, I think, through his writings. So you can read his writings if you understand the issue of uh, Shoka, uh, issue of, uh, you know, with, uh, um, political authority and power. So Ibn Taymiyyah uses that and he develops, develops it a bit more further than Imam Ghazali did. So you, you can see that. But were there Muslim rulers who followed their ideologies and theories? Maybe, maybe not, but it's all, it's all there in the Quran and Sunnah. So I don't think they needed Imam Ghazali or Ibn Taymiyyah uh, to come to terms with what they needed to do. It was all kind of very you know, intuitive sometimes. And it's also very Islamically common sense. Yeah? Maybe not common sense to uh, people who, who use the Western edifice of uh, politics, but it's very commonsensical to a Muslim thinker. What opinion should we possess about Khilaf of dynasties and if there's a difference, conflict with authoritarian Malukiya and the model of Khilaf? <laughs> You're asking for another seminar just on this. So, yeah, the bottom line, I, I believe, uh, in terms of uh, my understanding of Islam and politics and uh, the theories, is that look, um, you, you have to ensure that whatever system you are promoting ensures aman, security and the ability to develop, maintain infrastructure, because that's the fruit of Khilafah and the fruit of leadership and the fruit of any political system. So you, you have to be very careful, as I just said, that you, you, we cannot afford to be that idealistic. The past is the past. You, you cannot turn the clock back and say, we were like this. It's too late for that. Okay? Where are we now? What can we do now in order to improve our situation politically, uh, socially, on the ground, uh, economically, uh, in terms of education, uh, professionalism, adab, ethics, moral behavior, Muslim civilization values? What can we do to promote that? Okay. So, is it the system or is it the people? And so, so any system is good as long as human beings don't corrupt it. Okay? So if you have a great system, a great theory, then the theory will be there, but the people who enforce, uh, enact the theory, they, they will be responsible in charge of making sure that uh, there is no injustice and uh, there is nothing there that violates uh, the, the rights of people. Uh, so it doesn't matter whether democracy or theocracy, whether it's not a khilafah, it's, uh, the, the, the convention itself, as I said, is not written in stone. And you see that from the first three khulafah. Okay, so whether it's this way or that way. So now you want to blame people because, uh, you know, Muslim, because they become monarchs and so on. But did you know that, uh, you know, the <laughs> Islamic knowledge was preserved in the first century by the Banu Umayyah. Islamic knowledge uh, in the second centuries onward, century onwards was preserved by the Banu Abbas. 
both are monarchs and they're, they're monarchies and so on. So, so if something has been established, then we, we should say, okay, something good. We must appreciate the good. Evil is there, whether it's going to be this system or that system. So we have to ensure that we're practical, pragmatic, and not become holier than thou, that unless it is in this way, it is not Islamic. And so on. Because there, there's no, as I said, ijma uh, on the convention. That is very ishtihadi. And so on. It might be that when you rule a certain island, you know, or a certain country, martial law might be the only way you do it. It might be in a certain place, monarchy is the best. It might be in a certain place, tribalism uh, works better than anything else. Like here you have now democracies here. Uh, I mean, the, the largest democracy on the planet, obviously, is, is, is not a gift from heaven, trust me. <laughs> right? So it's not necessarily the system. The system is important, as Imam Ghazali says here. That our system of leadership and electing, selecting leaders has to be along the lines of the Sunnah, which is necessary and important as a theory. But am I going to start a revolution because I don't see the ideal system? No, he never did that. Very pragmatic and very practical. So you have to make sure that you don't uh, promote violence. Uh, I think that's my biggest concern. Uh, with these uh, ideologies and so on. Anyway, uh, could you speak about building quasi-governmental institutions, Muslim living in Muslim societies? Do you have a historical president for development system, limited self-governance of Muslims living as a reserve, reverse of Dimmies? Okay. <laughs> so do we have presence? The Hanafis have like the Malikis, they, they both have provisions in their fiqh that if you are living uh, under the rule of non-Muslims, then you must establish some kind of council uh, where you agree as Muslims that uh, you will resort to this council uh, and give them authority over your affairs uh, and then see if they can rule and govern the way they are allowed to do so in that uh, country. So in, in the USA, in Canada, uh, in Canada more so than here, you have now, you know, this issue in, in marriage and divorce and inheritance laws, mediation and arbitration. So if Muslims want to appoint a committee that is responsible for mediation or perhaps more arbitration, then certain states in the USA might allow it. <laughs> So you can have a European Council for Muslim Affairs. Uh, good luck with that. <laughs> um, so anyway, so I'm, you can. There, there is enough provision uh, for fiqh, uh, what you call of the minorities, fiqh al-aqliyat, written in uh, Fatah Alamgir, you know, the Fatah that the Mughals uh, had uh, commissioned. Um, what was his name? Aurangzeb. With uh, Mullah Jiwan, they started the, this huge project of writing fatwa for Muslims living in minority, as a minority, ruling as a minority in India. And then in the Hanafi fiqh, as in the Maliki fiqh, uh, you do have this provision that you shouldn't have a council. Obviously, that won't happen overnight. And, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that the ikhtiyar must be there, as I mentioned right in the beginning. It must be your free choice to say, I will concede to this council 
Uh, you can't go around saying, I'm the Amir of the Ummah, so you must now be forced to subscribe to this council. And so, so that, that, that won't work. Even if you mandate it, it won't work because there's just so much I, you know, freedom. Uh, and, you know, it's my thing. Don't force me to say or do anything. And so on. But is there room for that? There is room for that if you can agree to it, uh, inshallah. Good. Oh, good. Can you speak about? Good questions. Anything else? Very good. So we'll stop here. Jazakumullah khair for participating. Uh, again, if you have any questions, you may write to me at uh, darulqasim.org. Inshallah, come and see us, come and visit us, and uh, study with us too, and participate in our discussions. Inshallah, we thank Al-Barakh for you know, hosting this program. Allah give them barakah and tawfiq and success, inshallah, and give us all jannah, inshallah, without any hisab. Ameen, Al-Barakh, wa sallallahu ta'ala khayr khilq, Muhammad wa alayhi wa sahabi ajma'in, bi rahmatika, 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 rah